Okay, here to look through the Sunday papers are UCC's Head of Sociology, Neve Harrigan, uh, the writer and journalist Frank MacDonald, and Ian O'Doherty of the Irish Independent. Uh, let's start, guys, with I think the story of the week, undoubtedly, is the, uh, is the Volkswagen story. Huge coverage across the papers. Sunday Times is a good two-page spread in it. Uh, Jeremy Clarkson, though, um, I think the piece he has written, uh, Eno Doherty, will raise a few eyebrows. Um, well, I don't want to be reading the phrase poo shoot at nine o'clock in the morning before <laughs> I go on radio. I'm sorry, call me old-fashioned. I get more conservative as I get older. Um, <clears throat> I winced when I saw that particular phrase. I have to say, um, I was actually really glad that he wrote the piece because I spent the last couple of days going... What's the damage? What's the actual physical damage yeah, going to be? Just, what, just, what tell, exactly? us what, just tell us what he's saying first. Um, like as people know, that Volkswagen were basically fiddling with some of their meters and things of like that, and it's all terrible. And they were putting out more diesel than um, they've been letting on. But Clarkson basically has now written peace gone, um, which an awful lot of people have been thinking, although they probably wouldn't have expressed it in the same way. Is that just what exactly is the big deal here? Because when this first broke, I thought it was going to be a situation where either the cars were going to start going on fire, you know, spontaneously combusting. Or it was going to be like the Canyonero scandal in the States a few years ago you know, with those explorers that as soon if they t- if they took a left turn at more than thirty miles an hour they immediately overturned and th- th- you know and people died. So this it would appear to be that this is just one of those. It's, it's more of an, an yeah, environmental Clarkson, and a regulation. Clarkson say he's making a couple of points. He's saying basically the vast majority of emissions do not come from road transport, and of the forty percent that do, the vast majority are from lorries and buses. He's saying, um, contrary to what the BBC or the Guardian, the Pope would have you believe, it's not a matter of life and death. It's all just a silly game. The eco mentalists disagree, of course, but I therefore don't want to see. He says I don't want to see Volkswagen driven into oblivion over a bit of well-intentioned and harmless cheating. Well, he then goes on to list some other well-intentioned and harmless treatment. There's a big difference between a kid sort of mocking up an ID to try and get into a nightclub when she's 16 and not 18, and then something like this, which is basically quite potentially going to close down one of the biggest countries, one of the biggest companies in the world. But it goes back to the thing, what Clarkson was saying, and what an awful lot of people are only now, it took a few days for people to kind of digest um, perhaps the lack of gravity in this particular thing, and they're going, who's died, who will die, in terms of the well, kind maybe, of car Maybe quite a lot of people, and it just might be 100 it's years slower. from now. Just, or what, it was polar bears or something like that, is that it? Maybe. Frank, uh, you're a former environment editor. Uh, do you agree with uh, Jeremy no. Clarkson? Uh, no, Somebody not. No, I think that Jeremy Clarkson is just making little of the whole thing. Um, I mean, to say that it was a bit, uh, you know, a bit of good, good-natured rule-bending is just, you know, must be one of the euphemisms of the week. Tell us why it um, does make a difference. Because, you know, well, first of all, the reason why we have so many diesel cars is because a decision was made in the early 1990s uh, to encourage the sale of diesel uh, as a, um, an automotive fuel because it had lower CO2 emissions. And that would then contribute to sorting out or helping to sort out the climate chaos. So, you know, diesel cars were specifically encouraged. And if you look at the price, as as Colin McCarthy notes in the Sunday Independent today, the price of diesel at the pump is, you know, about 118, whereas petrol is something like 130. So there's an inbuilt incentive to buy a diesel car. But this was all based on the notion that the motor industry in general was making better and better diesel cars that were going to pollute the atmosphere much less than previously. Um, I mean, we all remember the old diesel buses in Dublin, you know, which were belching out. You yeah. know, would you, I mean, if you were caught in a, uh, on a bicycle behind them, you, you, you felt yourself being gassed, you know, by all this soot that was coming out of them. 
And, you know, that is the problem with diesel engines, that they emit uh, nitrogen oxides and um, particulate matter, which is commonly known as soot. And both of these are extremely dangerous um, for people with respiratory ailments. If you suffer from asthma, if you um, if you're elderly, if you're, you know, if you're a baby and so on. Um, is it you know, the, the, the Sunday Times suggesting um, they have a big uh, two-page spread, a scandal of arrogance, greed and skullduggery is its headline. Um, and Colin McCarthy writing about this in the yes. Sunday Independent. Is it the... Is it the beginning and the end of diesel cars, do you think? I think it probably, it, I think it ought to be, um, um, in, in a way, um, because, you know, the situation is unsustainable. I mean, clearly what has happened is that, that you know, VW fiddled the tests on a, in a very deliberate and systematic way in order to suggest that its cars were less polluting than they actually were mm. on the road. And that is, uh, I think, a really serious okay. offence. And it's being treated very seriously but in the United States. And the, they face the possibility of having to pay up to $18 billion uh, in fines yes, for huge essentially cheating. Let's bring uh, Neve Harrigan in. What, what did you take from in the coverage? In the uh, papers, and obviously I am neither a petrol head nor a diesel head, but it uh, it really highlights, I suppose, the law, the kind of unintended consequences of yes, regulation. Exactly. That you, you, you regulate to prevent one thing happened and, and by by this unintended, co- something else actually happens. And, and the the the... I suppose the twist, the dodge, the, the the fraud, in a sense, the VW were were a manipulation of that system. But what actually it highlights is the way in which government policy at a whole range of levels has kind of been trying to manipulate piece, people's choices around that. And one of the things I think that Colin uh, McCarthy highlights, and it's one of the better quotes on this, he says, the European Commission is proposing a tougher testing regime, the standard bureaucratic response. If a policy fails, it needs to be intensified, always reinforce failure. And, and in a sense, he's, I think what he He's kind of saying is that y- y- the debate needs to move on beyond a kind of local discussion of various emissions to bigger questions. One of the things is that uh, uh, London and Paris both seem to have been on the way to banning diesel cars anyway, but it will have consequences for the Irish market where people have been systematically, particularly since 2008, um, moving towards but, but diesel. That's the thing, but I mean, Irish, motors, <coughs> excuse me, um, Irish motorists have been regulated to death over the last 15 years, as it is. And this, is, th- in many ways, this reminds me of sort of the shifting sands of dietary advice that we get. I mean, 10 years ago, if you were a good citizen of the earth, you changed to a diesel car. And so people went and, you know, they were good citizens. They changed to diesel cars. And now they're being told, actually, that diesel cars might be causing more hassle than they're worth. So it's, it's a bit like being told one day that a glass of red wine is good for you and the next one's going to kill you. Yeah, but what about, the, what about the, you know, when the facts change, I change my opinion. And we, the facts have changed about diesel cars, or certainly about the amount of well, emissions. Well, people, were, people were saying this about this uh, about these things for years, you know. And the problem is, is that I don't believe any, and nobody with any functioning brain should believe a single thing that comes out of motoring regulations, right? Because it just seems to go. It, it's a bit like the UN. It seems to move with sort of you know political ebbs and flows. And I certainly, I mean, I don't drive. But are, are, I, are I the regulations drive, not not well meaning? But it was basically Shane. Well, meaning for God's sake, yeah, but Volkswagen, mean, like, I mean, Volkswagen basically cheated on those. It's not the regulations' fault that Volkswagen. Okay, let's cheated. go back to the Volkswagen cheated. Right, they should be fined. They broke the rules that they had actually signed up to exceed to. But just can somebody please explain to me, in ways that doesn't involve this new nitrous, uh, nitrogen oxide thing? Explain to me just what exactly the damage is. What it, what damage has actually been caused? Nitrogen oxide are not, the not important. Is that, what, is that what you're saying? The what? nitrogen oxide emissions are not important. That's not what I'm saying at all. Just okay. tell me what damage has been done. 
well, the, uh, huge damage has been done to like the Like in corp- terms of like no car, cars huge, aren't coming for Huge damage has been done to the corporate reputation of the Volkswagen Group um, and Volkswagen... But I think that's a no, given. I, th- I, I think, think Ian's, Ian's, Ian's question is... I think Ian's what question damage has been done to the motorist or the pedestrian by this? The, that's not the relevant question. The, the relevant <laughs> question is... I thought it was. The relevant issue is that we have a whole lot of cars going around the place now, not just VW cars, but in all probability other diesel-powered cars that are emitting far more pollution than, than the manufacturers claimed. And that is a really serious matter. So you reckon it's not just VW that ever do some companies? No, I think that a lot of diesel, manufacturer, diesel car manufacturers are probably doing the same thing. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if that turned out to be true. And that's the reason why tests have been ordered by the British government, for example, uh, uh, to find out whether this is the case. I think the problem basically was that the that diesel engine design was hadn't advanced enough to comply with the, the um, maximum limits that were laid down by the EU. So the regulatory technology. So the regulation was probably going beyond the technology. And don't forget also that improvements in the technology and improvements in, in the performance of cars were resisted by the car manufacturers over the years. Well, and, I'm resisted, I'm and, and resisted, okay. excuse me, and resisted most recently, resisted, resisted most recently by Angela Merkel. Like, is there going to yeah. be a recall or not? That's all people want to know. Well, mm. I don't ask that Volkswagen. Yeah, okay. We'll look at very, very briefly on this. Yeah, we'll I mean, there, there's two points. First of all, in terms of the importance of it, it does seem to have been caught up majorly in the relations between uh, Cameron and Merkel and has come up a number of times. And the other thing is this, this new uh, Porsche man who's in and supposed to reassure everybody and his reassurances that they're all going to keep the rules now have been greeted by relatively hollow laughter. So it seems to be that that's simply not an adequate response and maybe they are looking at a recall. Okay, it's an incredible story and uh, I suspect one we're going to be hearing quite a lot more of in the uh, the coming days and weeks. A lot of coverage in the morning papers about that decision of the Web Summit to move from Ireland to Portugal. Uh, just before we get the views of our panel, first let's have a listen to the man behind the decision, Paddy Cosgrave. He was speaking at last year's summit to News Talks Richard Chambers about some of the issues involved in running the event. You know, the Wi-Fi uh, didn't work. It's very frustrating. It's out of our control. I think maybe next year it might be put in our in our hands. You mentioned in the press conference here about there being an upper limit to what you can do in Dublin or in Ireland. Do you ever see the summit leaving Dublin, leaving Ireland, or being replaced with another thing? If there is that limit, is that? I, you know, I really hope there is no no limit. And Peter Finnegan of Dublin City Council, who's led the city's preparations, uh, has has been quite incredible. Um, and the question will be next year as we begin to plan and we'll increase the numbers again. Can Peter and his team put together the right the right amount of buses to try and get people? out of the RDS in the evenings, can they control traffic around the area? And if we can do that, and if we can find more space in the city to run some of our events, you know, maybe there is no upper limit. Maybe we could bring 100,000 people to Dublin. There isn't the hotel rooms, but there is Airbnb. Mm, maybe, maybe not, though, it would seem. Um, uh, Neve, uh, interesting coverage of it in the Business Post uh, today. Uh, Pat Leahy, Ian Guider and Jack Horgan-Jones have a, a story on, on what basically Paddy Cosgrave was looking for. But but first off, a good piece, I thought, by Jane uh, yeah. Rafino as well, sort of saying, listen, let's just... Let's calm down a little yeah. bit. This isn't Jane the, this Rufino isn't the end and Nina seem to be on the same page this morning because she's basically saying who's died and, and what's the big deal. And um, one of the things I think she's highlighting, and it, it, it's a really interesting piece,
piece in the context of what uh, Lee and Guider are saying, they're talking about the kind of internal tensions between the, the Web Summit team and the state around transport, around Wi-Fi, around the size of the RDS, etc. And, and her, one of her comments, I think, is particularly interesting. Um, and it, it's quite critical in many ways of, of the Web Summit team. She says, many even feel a little burned out having seen their emotional energy. And this is kind of the Web Summit milieu, all these startup people, the nerds, as Brendan O'Connor is calling them on Brendan the front. Brendan O'Connor has, it has to be said, yeah. a hilarious piece he's, on the he's front page. a little page. bit harsh on the nerds this morning. If you're a nerd, you may be feeling the heat, as I suppose technically a nerd. I probably am. Um, and he's absorbed, uh, the, basically many of this crew anyway, uh, feel that the company has grown beyond the community that promoted it. At the event itself, most of the people you'd like to meet if you're seeking investment or partnerships are behind the velvet ropes that require international reputation yeah. to access. Which I think is a, you know, it always struck me as an event that was yeah, that's slightly painful undercurrents to watch. Of oh, here. D- listen, I mean, I mean, my extent of computer ability is turning it off and turning it back on again. Like, you know what I mean? So and sometimes that can be tricky. Uh, or throwing it out a window. It's either <laughs> one is good for me, you know. Um, but I mean, let's not forget just the sheer embarrassment that everybody felt a couple of years ago when basically we organised one of the biggest tech conferences in the world and basically broadband wasn't working. I mean, if that was happening... Well, it country, wasn't that it wasn't working. Well, it, was it was so slow. slow. But, but I mean, I'm, I'm told by people, I don't know anything about this, that apparently no matter where you go in the world, if you get 30,000 people in one area, all, all with down. three or four devices, but then again, then, then there was the problem n- nowhere in the world there was the problem with water a couple of years earlier as well. Do you remember that some of the hotels didn't have water where people were staying because the, the pipes had frozen? It was just one of the things I find interesting. I don't know this guy, Paddy Cosgrave, but as, as some as people are kind of briefing. I would imagine that their government sources are kind of briefing against him by going, he was quite difficult and he wanted the world and he wanted this and the other. And yeah, apparently things it, became quite uh, increasingly fractious uh, in, in, the, the, to- in you know, the talks. There's no pleasing Paddy. I just want to read yeah, this. There's okay. no pleasing Paddy, said one source uh, on the government side. To be honest, I think he just overplayed his hand. Uh, he was basically, according to this report in the Sunday Business Post, they were looking for t- buses to be laid on. They were looking for a traffic plan to the be laid on. No, he was looking it, for mad it, stuff. It is Ted. a private but business. But the thing about it is, it's not a state event. No. It's not a state funeral um, or a Dáil Ireland hurling final. This is a private business. But you don't get results unless you are that driven and that pushy and maybe that obnoxious. Yeah, right. he, was you know, right, he was right to ask, but, right, but maybe the, the government head. was right not to give him what he wanted. So would you say basically it's just it's a score draw and they'll just leave it and maybe come back in a few years time or do you, I mean well maybe I, did, I mean life goes on I mean, it's, okay. it's amazing there was a massive flurry of outrage and national embarrassment and it seemed to just move on very quickly and people just became very there were, there, I, I thought there was uh, there was an interesting aspect to it that it, it would appear that Lisbon is paying something like 1.3 million euro uh, to uh, secure this um, web summit uh, from next year onwards uh, for a period of three years, and I presume that goes to Paddy Cosgrave's organisation. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's well, it, the it is presumably the price you have to pay yeah. to to get a major thing. And I mean, you know, it was worth something like fifty million or whatever. Well, it was, was to, it? I mean, people uh, say, I, "How well, did he come up with these?" Figures? Well, I'd say that. I mean, I mean with the prices of hotels were charging. Yeah, but that's assuming um, every. Ho- I imagine that's assuming every hotel room is now going to be empty. I mean, anyone, no, it's not going to be empty. Of no, of course not. it is. No, uh, I just have to read a line from Brendan O'Connor because it did make me laugh. He said, "We're a laughing stock among nerds all over the world, and nerds know a thing or two about being a laughing stock." <laughs> um, That's one thing. I, uh, what I'm interested, actually, in in your view, is Frank. I mean, I I think though there are lessons to be learned from this. I look, I don't think it's the end of the world. I think Jane Rufino is right. It's not the end of the world. 
But our, and this isn't knocking Dublin because it's a great city, there are lessons to be learned. I mean, for example, uh, the place where it's going in Lisbon, it's, there's a, a 50,000 capacity uh, conference. Now, look, I, I'm not saying we should build a 50,000 capacity, but what it does have is a uh, is a metro stop right at it. I mean, there are issues here in terms of Dublin and the infrastructure that is there or isn't there in the capital and maybe they're the lessons we need to learn from Well, it. I think that uh, anybody who uh, remembers the last um, time Ireland held the presidency of the European Council uh, will know, um, you know, the the arrangements that were made to ferry the other European leaders around the place, you know, with motor motorcades and guard escorts and beeping horns and everything else. Now, I don't think anybody is going to lay anything like that on uh, in order to overcome but the traffic problems that we have. I suppose my question is, have, wh- who, who's got the, a vision for Dublin? There isn't. There and isn't it any. is the capital. I know people no, listening no. say, oh, it's all about Dublin. It's the capital city. No, it's the there, engine of the economy. There just isn't any. Um, I mean, you know, what we've done, I mean, we're, you're, you're going to be talking about the Dart Underground situation uh, later on in the programme. Uh, I mean, we just dither. We just dither. We dither about things. Uh, we dither about things, particularly if they have big... Um, you know, uh, euro signs on them and um, the sums of money involved are quite substantial, uh, obviously for public transport investment. But, you know, Lisbon is an incredibly attractive city. There's no question about it. Um, It functions incredibly well. Um, It has a very good transportation system. It's possible to get all over the place in a matter of... It has a population of 3 million. A much, much larger larger city. And the vast majority of people there, of course, are living in apartments, living on top of each other like rats, as uh, some critic from rural Ireland would have had it. Yeah, uh, Neve, just just (coughs) lastly on this. I mean, it strikes me Dublin... And maybe the other cities, Cork, uh, Galway and Limerick, they need champions. I, I think this comes back to having directly elected mayors for a city, someone who can actually champion the city. Yeah, and uh, that may be uh, an issue that's revived now in, in the, the light of this. But I mean, in, in the broader not, sense, not, you see, not everything, that this, no, but everything that this government has done, in fairness, has been to uh, take power away from local government and put it into the hands of city managers and county managers who are administrators. And the government of, itself. So, yeah, indeed. So, I, you know, it, it would go very much a counter to what the government has done in terms of There were too many decisions about this city that have been made by people who are unaccountable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are too many decisions that have been made that have enraged the people who live in the city and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, Darley, how are you going to fill your time now that the Web Summit isn't going to be here next year? I'll find something <laughs> morally depraved to take up my time. Don't worry. Okay, Dave is texting to say, instead of free buses, maybe they could get free lifts from the Garda Siakana. Touche. Back in a moment on the Sunday show. Welcome back to the Sunday show, Shane Coleman, with you until noon today. Uh, our panel uh, going through the Sunday papers is still with us. Uh, we have the uh, writer and journalist Frank MacDonald, uh, Eno Doherty of the Irish Independent, and UCC's head of sociology, Neve Harrigan. Um, Neve, interesting piece. Not as much coverage on the, the sort of the refugee migrant crisis uh, in the papers today, but interesting piece in the Sunday Times News Review. Uh, Ian Kershaw, the yeah. uh, the historian. Um, He's not a Liverpoolian, but he's basically doing the old scouser, calm down, uh, basically. Yeah. Don't don't panic about this. He, he's from Oldham. He's a really well-known uh, historian of kind of the World War Two mid-20th century period, would be regarded as an expert on, on Hitler in particular. And uh, it, it's it's an interesting piece in the sense that it is attempt kind of trying to stand back from the, the day-to-day grit of the yeah. crisis and kind of and say, taking well... taking a kind of a benign... 
yeah. view of Europe sort of, you know, okay, muddling through, but, but still muddling well, through. Well, basically what he's saying is that, you know, there are significant parallels between the 20s and 30s and what's happening now. But because the EU exists in, in its form, albeit slightly shambolic at times and reactive, nevertheless, he feels that the response to this crisis and indeed the response to the banking crash of 2008 is better because the EU exists. Now, I'd imagine there will be people who take issue with that but a little like Winston Churchill's line about democracy being awful, but it's the least worst option, basically. Yeah. It's kind of what he's saying about But the in, EU. in fairness, he, he's very upfront about the fact that he is pro-European, that he's pro-EU. And one of the things he says when he, he looks at why Europe descended into war in 1939, he highlights ethnic, raci- racist nationalism, territorial conflict, class conflict, and, and uh, the crisis in capitalism. He says we have a lot of that stuff today, but we have, in his view, less territorial conflict, perhaps apart from Ukraine, Less class conflict, which I suspect maybe I you know you increasing. With that, all right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but he does acknowledge that ethnic nationalism is on the rise and that there is a crisis in, in capitalism. Um, but in, in a sense, I suppose one of the things that he does acknowledge is that the, one of the key differences is the I suppose the, the clash of civilizations uh, with Islam and and the West, so to speak, if you can describe it in those terms, um, and that that didn't exist in the twenties and thirties in quite the same way as it does now and I, I think we're really seeing this reflected particularly in the east-west division in the response to this crisis Absolutely. whereby <clears throat> eastern European countries being much more geographically on the boundary there and if we look at the Balkans in particular the tensions between Christians and Muslims in the Balkans are reacting I mean their reaction is quite mm. distinct in some ways from the western European Absolutely. reaction yeah. no, but the, the thing about, um, Kershaw is an eminent historian the two books he wrote on Hitler are fantastic I recommend them to everybody and he comes across he always comes across as that old school sort of liberal with a small L who believes in the fundamental decency of the individual he comes across as a good egg even mm. in his writing right he, you know he, he, he's on the side of the angels uh, is there a book coming up here? yeah there is a very big book I but I completely be, yeah. disagree with him um, <laughs> because really what we're, what, what we're witnessing at the moment is actually it's news it's not history if you know what I mean, right? This is something that's developing on a daily basis. And while it's nice that he has a vaguely sort of, you know, optimistic approach, even he is forced to admit that basically what we're looking at now is really, a, it's a cultural conflict. It's going to, we're already seeing the impact in Germany of girls being told to cover up where the things, and um, the, the, the rape and sexual abuse that's going on in, um, in camps. And even the, even the thing with re- refugees versus migrants, that, that's now become a distinction without a difference. You know, it's basically they're all being lumped in together. Um, I'm only. I, I don't understand I, why migrants is a dirty word. Anyway, I, I never say. said it was a dirty. No, word. no, I'm, I'm not saying you were. Here's 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 an idea, and I said this on I said this on something else the other day. It's like, why do we just start referring to them as people? Because it's you know, when somebody is defending the refugees, they're almost then having to go with migrants going they're only economic. Basically, everybody's here, and they're all here for their own reasons. And now the thing about it is, is that how long are they going to stay? How much is it going to cost? How much? How many of them are we going to bring in? And is there a solution to this problem? The way we're going at the moment, it would it certainly appear that. We're only getting to see the coming, we're seeing a preview of the coming attractions in that if you can imagine what Europe is going to look like in five years or ten years time, this is going to be the single most seismic change to happen in Europe since the fall of the, since the, fall of the Berlin Wall. Okay. Frank, are you closer to Ian Kershaw or uh, Ian O'Donnell? No, I wouldn't be optimistic about, uh, about Europe at all and I think the European project is now in, in serious um, jeopardy. Aren't we always um, saying that about the European project? No, but I think it does is, no, but it's really, it? no, but hold on a second now, uh, just to put it in context, I voted for every single European treaty, you know, over the years, every single one of them, because I firmly believed in Europe and the idea of Europe. Uh, I began to 
become disen- uh, or uh, unenamored by the European project when I realised that we were being screwed to the wall uh, for Europe's banking debt. Um, I mean, we we have borne this little country has borne forty percent of the cost of bailing out Europe's banks. Okay, uh, again, um, I, I'm you know yeah, that, okay. Sorry, I'm we not were quite sp- sure it's that straightforward. A lot of, well, a lot okay. of the money, a lot of the money was from okay. American banks. But anyway, let's, right. let's, well, not, let's not go into the burning okay, bondholders whatever. again. I'm not yeah. I'm not getting into yeah. burning bondholders at all. I'm just saying we were screwed by Europe uh, in in Europe's interest. Um, we have been saddled with a debt of sixty five billion from our own banks, much of which they brought in from abroad, uh, from Europe and from other places. Um, the response of the European institutions to the, uh, re- the refugee crisis uh, has been appalling. And I'm just ashamed of the actions of fellow Europeans, notably Hungarians, Cro- uh, um, uh, Slovakians and others, um, you know, who are seeing the whole thing in racist terms uh, erecting okay. gates and fences yeah, and everything else. They have recent living history. I know, I know that. I know, I know that. But don't forget that in the case of Hungary, uh, many there, there were a hundred thousand uh, Hungarian refugees uh, from the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956, and they were looked after in other in other countries. You know, the Hungarians seem to have lost. Uh, the, but they were from Europe. I, I, I know that. I know that. But the, but, but the point about it is that we, we we are in a situation where there are something like three million Syrian refugees living in adjoining countries of Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. Um, in appalling conditions, especially in Lebanon but, but I think, and Frank, in Jordan. That's, that's the weakness and, and, of the and, peace. And, and the most important thing that okay. Europe needs to do is, and they made a decision finally this week uh, to allocate some funding uh, for to improve conditions in these refugee camps. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right, but I think the weakness of the piece is that it's, it's focusing solely on the European response while it's not recognising that the origin of much of this problem is actually outside Europe. Yes, exactly. Whereas if we look at World War II, the origins of the problems of World War II were within Europe. The origins of much of this problem is in North Africa. And you see, the, the difficulty uh, is... No, not North Africa necessarily. Well, in parts of the Middle East. But in the difficulty is that even if, for instance, Europe turned around in the morning and said, right, we will respond adequately to the needs of all these three million refugees. There are millions and millions coming behind them. And at the core of the conflict, which is driving this, is, is a conflict w- within Islam itself, primarily, do you know what I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of its, what's going on with ISIS, etc. Um, so, hold on a second now. Don't absolve the United States no, and its oh, allies for, for having destroyed well, Iraq, for having destroyed Iraq, having destroyed Libya, having destroyed Iraq and having destroyed Libya. Don't absolve them. them okay. Obama did worse by withdrawing. He should have stayed in Iraq. And actually, Frank, it is a lot to do with North Africa as well, because a lot of this goes back to the Arab Spring, which all the liberals in Europe went, yay, we're going to bring democracy to the region. And all of us have said, you cannot bring democracy to that region. You cannot impose democracy unilaterally in that region because it's going to cause chaos. Oh, we're all shouted down as being Islamophobes. We're all shouted down as being racists. Well, four years on, this is what we have. Well done, liberals. The blood is on your hands. But I mean, if we look at the core of what's happening in Syria right now, and we look at ISIS versus versus Assad, which is at the core of what's driving so much of the movement at the moment, that is a problem which is outside Europe and which is getting worse and is not going to, you know, there, there, there needs to be a broader, this is not simply a European problem. And until it's acknowledged as being something well, much exactly, broader that was than that. That was also my point, that, that, the, that some of the countries that have been, are responsible for creating 
the uh, situation that we now are f- faced with are not European countries. The United States, for example, has taken very, very few uh, refugees. And frankly, uh, they have their own from, southern border problems. And the, the, the I know, I know the, they do. Europe I know they do. But they North also Africa have a global responsibility be, for the look, chaos that they create. If we wanted, if we genuinely wanted security in that region, what we should actually have is more people like Assad in charge, right? What the region needs, yeah, strong, you, strong secular military dictators who keep the crazy. Isn't that great? Would you like to live under an Assad regime? I'll tell you one thing. There's, that's ridiculous. I tell you one thing, I would rather live under Assad's regime than I would live under ISIS's regime. Yes, absolutely. I would much prefer to live under Assad's regime than under a, an ISIS-controlled area. So actually, I'm, I'm very happy to give you the answer. it's fine for us as Europeans to advocate that other people uh, in close proximity to Europe should live under tyrannical dictatorships? Is that your view? Compared to uh, the ISIS alternative? Well, let's, let's see how... Look at Algeria... Look at Tunisia. Look at the way it's. Look, look, at, look at what's at coming Egypt, down the pipe no, in Morocco. Egypt. Look, look. Oh yes, isn't Egypt just a remarkable success story? That in whole what, region what was better when they were. Back. Unfortunately, the unfortunately, we the mass this, sentencing we, people to death. Frank, if you look, if you let me finish, right. The simple fact of the matter is that we have this remarkable white liberal arrogance that we assume that we can impose Western consensual. Dem- democratic systems onto cultures that quite simply have absolutely no history of them. And then we throw our hands up in the air and go, where did it all go wrong? Okay, Frank. We, we well, uh, countries in the world signed up to the uni- UN's Universal Declaration on Human Rights in 1948 and um, there's absolutely no reason why uh, the values that are uh, present in that declaration uh, shouldn't be applied generally everywhere. But that doesn't mean uh, that that you know we're left in a situation where we have to cheerlead um, um, tyrannical regimes such as Saudi, such as Egypt, such as um, um, uh, several other regimes in the region, uh, and absolve um, the okay. imperial yeah. powers and in, in absolve the imperial the powers. Why are the okay. Gulf states taking people? I, I okay. think one of the most interesting, and it's a story that we haven't covered today, and it's run in the Sunday Times for two weeks, has actually been Henry Kissinger's um, experiences uh, leaving Germany uh, in '38 and then coming back in yeah. the kind of triumphal force. Uh, and one of the things that he highlights in his work is that if you want to buy into those values, you have to be willing to enforce them. You have to be willing to. It's 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 no good just disposing them in a kind of ephemeral way. They have to be backed up with with effort and with money and with sacrifice. And I think that's the big challenge that's come and it's being posed right to Angela Merkel right now is what do you actually mean when you want to buy into these? I mean this okay. thing on bombing the boats. One thing before we finish. Just briefly. Would yeah, it not make more sense? Can everybody at least agree we should at least apply the lifeboat principle? on any of the refugees or migrants coming in, it's women and children. There's too many, there's hundreds of thousands of young Muslim men of fighting age who have suddenly left their country and they're all coming into Europe. At least go back to the lifeboat principle, women and children. But first. maybe they don't want to fight. Is that not the point? Well, there might be a tough, fighting if it age, is that much of a humanitarian crisis, bring in the women and children first. Do you, listen, they're quite happy to start kicking off at refugee centres, right? Okay. All right. Well, for Why are they all coming over? For what it's worth, I'm with Ian Kershaw. I actually think... I think Europe, for all its its faults, does ultimately muddle through. And I think things would be a lot worse uh, for if, if Europe wasn't there. It would have been a lot worse for our banks, I think, if Europe wasn't there as well. They did bail us out for quite a period of time. OK, look, our, our panel is a lively one this morning. They're staying with us. We'll be back in a moment.
Welcome back, Neve Harrigan, uh, Frank McDonald, and Ian O'Darty are still with me going through the Sunday papers. Uh, we have a text in from Gary who describes himself as a furious Finnegale voter, saying, uh, "Shane, I don't really, I really don't think we're taking the Minister Murphy Garda lift story seriously enough. This is the stuff we were promised would change. As a government supporter, do they not understand this is the stuff that drives people mad? Why has he not been fired like in any other country?" Um, Frank, there's an interesting development in this story. I think the Sunday Times have the story, and John Lee and Debbie McCann have the story in the Irish Mail and. Sunday, which cast a little bit of doubt about the minister's version of events, basically saying that he, uh, the meeting he had to get to the next uh, that day or later on that day um, actually was cancelled, and he didn't need to be there until early Monday morning. But you're you're not particularly shocked by this story. No, I mean it's just a, a, a typically Irish casual abuse of power. Um, it derives from a culture of entitlement, uh, which um, people in such positions seem to develop uh, and um, so they see no problem whatsoever in calling up the guards at a quarter past three in the morning and saying can you ferry me out of here you know I think it's a disgrace yeah, I, I think it's partly in a sense it's, it's Barack Obama I think might sympathise here is that when you set up very high expectations um, and it, this was you know we remember them all going down in the minivan or whatever to the Oris and, and this, ho, 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 this yeah. was supposed to be the end of the era I mean that was nonsense though as well wasn't it that well, was pain was that was kind of optics pure um, optics I, that's yeah, disgusting. But I find that more annoying. But I, uh, in fairness, I think if we, if we all go back to 2011 and we think of all the new political movements and emer- it was very effective optics at the time and, and there was a real demand at that point for a change in the culture of Irish politics. But in the intervening period, that seems to have largely unraveled. Yeah, but isn't the problem here, like I have no problem with ministers being driven around the place. I think they should be. And sometimes I think there's a need for a government jet. I don't think ministers should be driven around in a guard a car, though, when, when they can get a taxi. Well, and in a, one of the issues that comes up in the mail and in a number of other papers is that if, if we look at the, you know, the cuts to guard resources and all the uh, discussion of rural crime recently, and there's apparently only three guard cars in North Cork. And if one of them is ferrying a minister, I mean, would it not be better to go back to the days where there's actually somebody designated to do that rather than somebody who's being burgled or somebody who's something and yeah. they're for a guard a would, it have been a tra- would it have been a real tragedy Ian, if he'd missed that meeting even if it was going ahead I'm sure that meeting could have been well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the safe and proper governance of our democracy would have been perhaps pe- fatally compromised <laughs> by such a great meeting of minds not actually happening honestly I was <coughs> as soon as I've been this and just the phrase they haven't gone away you know just kept on ringing through my head is that <coughs> Frank's right um, we are served incredibly poorly by our elected representatives um, I'm a real romantic. Well, they're when they're just a reflection of us as a people. I, I, I'm not well, sure I buy well, I, into I really that. Hope not. that I mean, that, you know, anybody who's been in the doll lately really hopes <laughs> that that is not an accurate representation. I think of, they of, are of a pretty people. accurate representation um, of us, are they not? That's way too depressing to be laying on people's heads. I'm this afraid time you're right. Morning, you know? um, yeah. But no, I am. Quite, I, I'm still quite idealistic about politics, and oh. I don't like. No, I don't like the reflexive cynicism. Reflexive cynicism is really, really easy, and unfortunately, with people like this, the only thing I could say in his in his defence is that. He's the first Irish politician I've seen who didn't want to put 350 quid down for a taxi fare and his expenses claims. Yeah. So I suppose that's... Okay. But I, mean, look, 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 I think we're a, all agreed. It's, it's a, a joke. It was a, a bad judgment call by you should, you should, is it. Is it a resigning issue? You would like to think. If there was any concept of honour left in the Frank Irish Frank resigning politics. issue? Well, I mean... Uh, um, or a firing issue? I think in Britain that uh, they would certainly have to go 
Um, I think the bigger issue is the government's whole agenda of political reform from shattered referendums and but everything else. But it was a sham agenda. Completely yeah. in the can. No, I accept that it's in the can. You know, but it was an agenda that was put it, forward it, it, in 2011 for the general election and nothing. But there, and there is. Or okay. almost if we nothing look at the, where since. that came out of, Frank, right, okay. that came out of the financial crisis and yeah. a whole range of analysis of the problems of our political system and they have to be addressed. We often talk about the public's contempt for politicians, but what we don't talk about enough is actually the politicians' contempt for the public a lot of the time. Okay. I think and it's fair to say he made, a, uh, he made a pig's ear of it. Speaking, hey, of, speaking of pig's ears, Ian O'Doherty. <gasps> oh, no. Uh, David Cameron, uh, interesting piece in the, uh, in the Sunday Times from the guy who revealed... James Nottingham. Yeah, who'd, yeah. he'd smoked uh, pot. I actually thought the most damning revelation that came out about I know the Prime Minister... Go. I know where you're going to say. ...was the admission that he listened to Super Tramp. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's are, <laughs> Super Tramp actually are oh. well worth a revival. They have actually yeah. written some really? great songs, even though we tried to kill them during the punk wars. Um, no, the, the, the thing with the, with the whole pig is that... <coughs> It's so ludicrous, and I was saying during the outbreak, it's maybe because I went to a rugby playing school, but I've heard of an awful lot worse hazings and initiations and things of like that. I mean, frankly, I genuinely thought the pig was still alive when I first saw the story. And I thought, God, is he mad? I thought, like, that's an insane kind of hazing. I genuinely, honestly thought the pig was still alive. It's not. It's it's great colour. It's great but fun. I the, think the, what the it next does cover of private eyes is going to be brilliant. And in be is, is the slight change that's happened to David Cameron's image. If we look at when he first got elected, you know, one of the key things he did was to, to orient himself, particularly to go after the female middle class voter. That was one in, group in the UK who really bought into David Cameron in a big way. And certainly as his, his certainly his economic policy has certainly begun to favour the elite in, in much more overt ways. His own membership of essentially the British aristocratic elite is becoming more, we see the, the term chipping snorting being referred to, mm. he's part of the chipping snorting set and obviously his membership of the Bullingdon Club and Eton. And this is starting to become a much higher, and, and it's very interesting to look at it in opposition to what's happened in Labour with Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And we're seeing, this goes back to my point about class conflict and class uh, tensions, uh, Shane. I, I think well, that Boris we're looking Johnson at a, 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 a polarisation which is happening in, in many countries now who have experienced austerity as they have done in the UK okay. and it but it, I, th- I thought it was very ironic that uh, that this uh, this thing arose in the week uh, immediately after the Tory press in Britain tried to make a laughing stock of the Labour Party's le- new leader Jeremy Corbyn uh, and um, yeah, it turns kind of not at all of course not um, but David uh, Cameron um, w- instead was turned into a bit of a laughing stock over this and it's, I, I just think it's something that's going to, as it were, dog him for the rest of his political days. Uh, because all you'd need really are some protesters turning up with a kind of a cardboard pig <laughs> cut out. And, you know, everybody you're gets wrong, the You're message. working this out in your head yeah. for the next time you're over. For all, right. <laughs> all right, listen, we better let you go. Ian O'Doherty needs to get his Breakfast in America album out and uh, go back and listen to uh, Super Trump. My thanks to the panel, to uh, Frank McDonald, uh, to Neve Harrigan and uh, to Ian O'Doherty. We're going to play out with a, a little bit of, uh, and especially for Ian O'Doherty, David Cameron's favourite band. Oh, no. Oh, no.